Hey, welcome to the fifth episode of Dear Seekers. I'm your host Sasha Shao. Dear Seekers is a biweekly podcast which we chat with creative, conscious, and curious women, and tell their stories of how they get to where they are now and what are they currently seeking to be more tomorrow. We travel to each woman's home, take some beautiful images in their most intimate space, and have some honest conversations, sometimes over wine. This woman may seem to quote unquote have it all, but they're willing to welcome us to their most vulnerable space, both literally and metaphorically. This is like a dream come true for me because since I was very little, I always loved visiting other people's homes. It's such a storyteller space, you know. Like, what kind of books are they reading? What is on their coffee table? What are they hanging on their wall? This truly fascinates me. A little creepy, I know. Now I mention here, probably no one will agree to be on my podcast anymore. Anyway, if you're as curious as me, visit our website ideaseekers.com to see each woman's home and how they decorate their space. Creepy is the new cool. Okay. Today's guest is what a modern Renaissance woman looks like, thinks like, acts like. I'm so honored and excited to be sitting here with Heidi Sopinka. Welcome to Dear Seekers. Thanks so much, Sasha. When I first reached out to Heidi, I was amazed by how she and her dear friend Claudia built a colorful indie fashion label, Horses Atelier. From the ground up, to have customers like Ralph Simons, Leandro Medine, and when I discover her beautiful novel, The Dictionary of Animal Languages, I was even more intrigued. Because you know, usually when a fashion designer turned author, she or he would write an autobiography to share their story and their journey. Not writing a novel—that's not very common. But I quickly realized Heidi is not a conventional woman. She was a bush cook in the Yukon. A helicopter pilot, by the way, she also has the license, and she was also a columnist for the Globe and an editor for an architecture magazine in Toronto. Oh, and she is also a mother to three beautiful children. So my first question, if I can dive into that, is: as a kid, out of all these professions, which one was the one that you were dreaming to be doing when growing up? Oh, that's such a good question.、Um, it's funny, you know. I think always would it would be a writer.、Um, I've always been a huge reader from a young age. I would, you know, read way after my parents told me to stop, and I'd go through the night and finish books, and I became obsessed. And I, at a young age, I really realized that <clears throat> that books really have the potential to alter you.、Um, you can. You know, disappear into another world, or learn something, or feel something that you never, or just explore the world in a way that you never had seen before. And、um, so that I loved so much. And and so writing and reading's always been a big kind of through line, I guess you could say, in my life because I studied English literature at university, and then、um, I sort of had various editing and writing jobs all along. So that's sort of been a love of mine. And although, funnily enough, I remember we took a career test in grade three, and it spat out astronaut for me, and I was like, <laughs> I don't want to、wow. be an astronaut. But then I remember the boys thought it was super cool, and then I was like, hmm. There's so many tangents. I guess I'm such a generalist, but I think the piloting came actually weirdly out of writing because I thought. 
I worked on as a bush cook for forest firefighters in the Yukon. So we were in the middle of nowhere. We got helicoptered into these fires and they were fighting fires and I would just make food for, you know, like 60 people hungry, oh hungry <laughs> in the middle of the, sorry, where? When? Um, oh, when? Uh, that would have been around the mid nineties. Yeah. Uh, um, and I just, how, and how did that all happen? Well, I was actually, I'd gone up to the Yukon with a boyfriend of the time. Oh, so it was a love story. Yeah, kind of. And we, we were like, we just felt like, you know, getting in a car and seeing where we ended up. And that's where we ended up, um, in the Yukon. And we thought, Ooh, maybe we could like, I don't know, make money, like doing something that we wouldn't expect. We just had no idea what it was. And then it turned out that there were, it was a summer of lots of fires. It was really hot. And we just kind of got conscripted to go and do it. So he was a forest firefighter and I cooked. So, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, and then I, I got into a helicopter. Like a movie. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it was the very first time I'd ever been in a helicopter. We got in a helicopter and went off the edge of a cliff. And I, I remember just looking out and thinking, this is the most amazing feeling. And then I started talking to the helicopter pilots and they sort of told me a bit about the work. It's dangerous. You get paid really well. It's hard to train, all of that. And I thought, wow, this would be the perfect job to do for like, you know, it's like a few, it's seasonal. So you do a few heavy months in the summer and then you have your whole rest of the year off. So I thought that would be perfect for writing. So I could, you know, do that work and then I wouldn't have to worry about making money writing. I could just write what I wanted. And then I, I sort of did some training in Texas is where I flew a lot. And then I got into a very specialized program um, for pilots and then the government cut the funding. So I wasn't, the only other route to do that kind of specialized training was to go into the military, which is not something I would have been suited for. So <laughs> you were, like, you were so it was an astronaut though. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, so, so that's when I kind of switched gears and went, fell back onto journalism and writing and working in magazines. I actually went um, to Southeast Asia for a while and worked for a travel guide publisher, okay, um, a British. Here for a little bit, because <laughs> to you may sound like a smooth transition. Oh, okay. But to me and I'm sure a lot of listeners might be like, what? From a pilot to an editor? Oh, yeah. I feel like there's like... There's a few steps in between. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So if I'm to really back up, when the funding was cut for that training, I had my heart set on doing it. And so I quickly changed gears and applied to do my master's in literature out West, which I started and then was miserable. It rained every day. I realized I'm not a West Coaster as much as it's beautiful and I love visiting there. And I just knew I wasn't, my heart wasn't in my studies. I just sort of had done it on a dime and I didn't really know what I wanted to specialize in. And so I used the rest of my tuition money and bought a plane ticket to Singapore. Singapore. <laughs> yeah. One of my sisters was living there at the time. So I thought, well, I'll go visit her and then I'll travel around and then make my way home and then figure out what I'm going to do. And then when I was there, I sort of joined forces with a British travel guide publisher and they did really fascinating books. You know, I could write a chapter about like the ancient form of Hinduism and, the, and Bali or something. Like it wasn't about, you know, hotels and stars and things like that. It was more kind of being on the ground and, and sort of, you know, doing a more journalistic approach to travel and to research and kind of delve in. So I actually, I remember I lived on Bali for about two months while I, I wrote a few little pieces for them there. And, and then I just sort of, I started doing more, I did freelance and, and that sort of thing. And then I eventually found my way back, but I was there for almost two years and then 
came back to Toronto and then started working for a design and architecture magazine as an editor, which is nice to, I kind of loved working in magazines just because every story is different. You learn a lot. It's good for people like me who's a, who are generalists because then everyone has a different you know angle and you learn so many strange and interesting things that you might not encounter regularly. I was sort of outside of my interest zone in a way, studying these architecture and design you know, I went to design charrettes and I went to one in France. And so it was really interesting. I learned a lot and then sort of jumped around to magazines and did freelance from there. So. Heidi's rich experience was leading her to somewhere and to something, which she wasn't fully aware at the time till the birth of her first child. Giving birth and being a mother has really given her a different perspective of life, death, and everything in between. I had a child and then I decided I wasn't going to go back to the office. The hours for magazines are sort of terrible for families. It's They start late and end late and it just didn't really work with a young family. So I was freelancing at home and that's when I got my idea actually about my novel. I had a... Oh, really? Yeah. So it was right after I gave birth to my first child. I sort of had this idea. So he, my, my oldest child is now almost, well, he's 12. Oh, no Yes. So it's germinated for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. So I had the idea, I guess I, giving birth to me was so profound. It was really, um, I don't know. I wasn't expecting, um, there's so many things and cliches about it, but one thing I wasn't expecting was that it was actually a really creative time because you're kind of allowed to drop out of society and you kind of have a real reason. No one bothers you. You're caring for a small baby. So you, you kind of, you have diplomatic immunity a little bit, um, which was kind of nice because you got to just be in your own world. I had maternity leave at the time, so that was a real gift because I didn't have it with my other children, but I had been working full time. So like I wandered, I strapped a baby on my chest and I kind of wandered around and I was sort of in my own head, which is sort of where you have to be to write a book, I think, or where you have to begin. Another sort of on a practical level, so I chose to not go back to an office because I I was sort of working freelance and able to kind of cobble things together. And I really felt like I wanted my time to count. It was the first time in my life where I felt like I don't want to squander time. Like I realized how much time I'd sort of wasted when I was free of like a commitment like a child. And so it was sort of kept things in sharp, you know, relation. So I had to just be, you know, if I was going to take a few hours away to work, I wanted it to be something meaningful, which is sort of, again, how the novel kind of started to, to come into being. And I really feel like it was just an idea that wouldn't go away. And then I had to kind of contend with it and sit down with it. Um, so that's sort of how it started. <laughs> The other thing is, is that um, the sort of the flip side of birth, of course, is death. And that's sort of what became, I was sort of a late bloomer. I know teens are really into the notion of, of dying and death. I had never gone through that phase. So I did write with a young baby and I started, and of course, it sort of led me right to old women, which I found totally fascinating. And one of my jobs when I was in university was I worked at an old age home for women. And I was always struck by it. Like you'd read the chart at the end of their bed and this tiny little lady would have been like the first woman that studied medicine at U of T or something, you know, and you sort of look at them and you think, God, I'm so reductive. I looked at her like, you know, like you see her now as this shrunken person that can't remember which 
you know, foot to put her shoe on or whatever, you know, and I think, but imagine what she did and she pioneered in the, her time. And I just suddenly became like kind of obsessed with old ladies, which is sort of how my novel began. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to jump in with one of my stories. Oh, yeah, yeah, please do. <laughs> the narcissist. No, no, Not go. Me, I'm going to tell you my story, but it's kind of related to what you just shared. Okay. I, I worked at a retirement home. Oh, okay. These people were doctors, you know, lawyers, mm-hmm. judges. Um, some people were professional dancers, but some of them didn't even remember who they were anymore. Mm. And then we always say, we don't know who we are, but the memories are the ones we have only left for us. Yeah. And then, so when you don't have any memories, the identity and then everything else are in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that just gave me a huge perspective like mm. about life and mm-hmm. death. You know, sometimes like we're rushing somewhere so in a hurry but where are we going mm-hmm. anyway so well i know but topic. don't you i know it's it is really interesting though because i think um i i i think you know, I read at some point when I was researching this book, I, I, like the death of an old, it's a proverb, an African proverb that says that the, the death of an old person is like the burning of a library. And I, I that really struck me because wow. I thought like, they do, they contain all of the memory. And we are just the compilation of our memories, you know, and once that's gone, and once those people of a generation are gone, there's no one left to tell those stories, you know, which I felt... I don't know. I feel like there's so it's so rich, and 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 our culture is so youth obsessed that we just kind of put, and we're not also we don't have much um, contact with death or people on the sort of threshold, you know. So it's another thing I sort of lamented was that we just we hide it, you know, in these old age homes. Like people visit their their loved one like once a week or something, or once a month or however, and they don't they're not like part of their life anymore. And it, it really made me sad. I felt like it was, I mean, I know there's lots of reasons for those, you know, situations to occur, but I just felt like all these people with all of these lives that are just kind of tucked away. Right. Yeah. And then kind of very intriguing. You mentioned you got into this obsession with old ladies, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more. About oh, that. well, you know, it's funny because I, I, right before I had my first child, I, I, I went to um, hear Jane Jacobs speak before she died. She was well in her 80s, I guess, and she was sort of sitting on the stage. She had a little hearing trumpet in her ear. And she sort of, this, it was, you could have heard a pin drop in this packed room. And she sort of said, you know, I have this creepy feeling that things aren't being remembered. And I, and I always thought of that line. Um, but I just also thought of um, how, you know, like someone who's worked and and felt and lived so deeply and she was into her 80s like she's who I wanted to listen to you know I just really felt like we don't tend to kind of revere the experience and the long view of people and that so again just sort of led me back to older women that worked up until late in their years and I, I think particularly for women because we have such a different sort of trajectory than men like I feel like especially when you look at artists um so many women artists get their due way too late they're either dead or really old and and maybe not even practicing anymore you know I think of like Louise Bourgeois um Leonore Carrington who I'd met Agnes Martin 
there's just a lot of, and there's a woman in New York right now, Carmen Herrera, who had her first show in her 80s, I think, and she's now 101, you know, and so they're finally getting, like, as it, artists peak <laughs> late for women, you know, it's like, because they finally get their notice then, I guess, or, you know, it's, and it's one of the professions, too, that you can kind of work right up till the end, and, and it's, it can get better, you know. I didn't expect we're going to be explored this far for this topic, but I'm just finding very intriguing. Because in, in my culture, in the Chinese culture, it's always kind of conflicted. Because okay. the older is the wiser. Right. The older is being oh. respected the most. Okay. But at the same time, this chase after the youthness, uh-huh. you know, all this plastic surgery, right. all this yeah. commercial commodity about you got to look younger than who you are. Oh, yeah. you look so young. That's a compliment. Yeah. I mean, I do think we have a conflicted relationship with age for sure and aging and particularly with women. I think there's so much pressure. Men can, you know, become distinguished looking and women just have to kind of try to keep up and look young. And I just think there's a great disparity there that I hope that will evolve further and it won't be quite as bad in the future. But right now it still is like that, I feel. In her novel, Heidi tells stories of this woman, Ivory Frame, in both times when she's 19 and when she's 92. I can't help but finding the name quite unique. Oh, I, you know, it's funny. I, I always had her name as Ivory. Um, my partner showed me something written by a, a, like a kid that said something like, I think of you often, comma, Ivory. And I remember thinking that I think it just the whole thing phrase sounded so cute and sort of sweet to me and Ivory I thought what an old strange name and I kind of wrote it down in my book and then I it just sort of stuck you know and it felt like it it felt like a name that might be given to because she comes from a, a high pedigree like a family with money and seemed like a name a British name that you know it's an old English name so and I wanted a name that I was unused to it's sort of like naming children you don't want to have any association unless it's a good association I guess but it sort of felt like I hadn't really heard it before and I kind of could live with it for a while. And then frame, I I don't know. I mean, I suppose I liked the simplicity of it and um, I didn't really think of it as it could actually be a thing. Like it's an adjective and a noun, her name, really, when you think about it. (laughs) But I never, I only thought about that later. But I didn't mean to do that. But anyways. That was a beautiful accident. Same as the choice of the book cover. We often say, don't judge a book by its cover. But the cover of Heidi's novel was the first thing that caught my attention. Two people hugging on the beach by a bridge in Paris. At least I think it's a bridge in Paris. So I thought, hmm, it must be a love story. But then when my eyes landed on the title, The Dictionary of Animal Languages, I got a little bit confused. But quickly, I wanted to know more. It's the publisher who sort of has a lot of the control or input into what they want to market, I suppose, about a book. Um, and it was a hard one to art. I, I, I you know, we, we had lots of toing and froing because it's got, it's a long title and it's already got like a lot of visual kind of connotations around like animals and it couldn't have an animal because it would seem to, you know, like doubling up on the words and the image. So they felt like they really thought that the, the love affair at the center of the book, which is um, with Ivory and a character named Lev, and they sort of, they meet in surrealist Paris in the 30s and they sort of felt like at the heart of the book the love story 
could be, you know, it would be a nice juxtaposition, that sort of strange long title with, with this sort of couple in an embrace in Paris and sort of 30s-ish Paris. So yeah, and I kind of liked the juxtaposition because the book is kind of about a lot of polarities like art versus science and, you know, love versus work and youth versus age. And, you know, there's so many different kind of things that are playing against one another. And it feels like the cover sort of does depict that in some way. Did you approach the publishing company or yeah. they approached you? Uh, well, I, I approached, yeah, I sort of cold emailed people when I, I finally was like, you know what, I have to take this out of a drawer. It, if it doesn't get out in the world, it's going to almost lose its resonancy even with me. It's so old kind of in my thinking. And so I sent it around and I, I got, and Penguin was interested in Canada. And I also have a publisher in the UK and then they're publishing it in the US and I I just found out it's getting translated into Polish which is very oh. exciting. <laughs> so so there's lots of exciting things happening and I I really w- was thrilled to just have it in the world. Like I kind of part of me thought maybe it'll just be this strange book that I'll pull out one day and my kids will read it. First off, on behalf of Penguin Canada, I would like to begin by saying how proud we are to be publishing the dictionary of animal languages. You're hearing Heidi's editor, Nicholas Garrison, speaking at a book launch recently held at the Glastone Hotel. I recorded with my humble iPhone. As brave, as ambitious, and as beautiful as the dictionary. But on my own behalf, as Heidi's editor, I feel particularly pleased. Um, before I knew Heidi as an author, I met her as someone working earnestly on the carburetor of a haunted generator. <laughs> This is about 23 years ago. We were in a small trailer in a bush camp north of Timmins. There was snow on the ground, and it was not unlike tonight. Uh, without the generator, there would be no light and no power, so the, the stakes were very high. And there was Heidi. The, I can remember the, the smell of diesel in the air. <laughs> I can remember the, the, the flare of people's headlamps as they gazed nervously around the room and the, the passing of tools back and forth. And if you told me that night that Heidi would write a few years later a, a, a beautiful, heartbreaking novel that mines the language of science and art to try to find a way of talking with the experience of, of love and loss and grief and the way that our some of our noblest ethical impulses are betrayed by history, I would have said, yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> Yes, that does sound about right. You don't have to speak with Heidi for too long to realize this woman is full of ambition, but yet in a very gentle and soulful way. While listening to her, I sometimes feel like she's not writing a novel. She is from a novel. And Heidi told me rabbit and fox are two of her favorite animals. I found it quite interesting that Heidi seemed to have this very intimate connection with animals. When I was a teenager, we moved to a farm. Um, My mom had five horses at the time. And before we went to school, I would ride a horse through fields and like, you know, sometimes see an owl taking off or something. And I just felt like it was the most special thing. And I feel like animals are such, um, I don't know what the word would be, like they're revenants, like they're, they're like spectral almost. Like they, you know, you kind of exist in this wordless place with them, but they kind of carry like some sort of spirit that is there. And I, I love the, I found that fascinating and just sort of wanted to delve further into that. 
And how did you tie the animals' theme to the love story in your new book? Well, it's funny because I, I guess the character in my book, she's an artist, and she immediately sort of paints animals when she's in Paris, which she admits is a weird practice when you're in an urban place. She sort of seeks out the little places of wilderness there, and it sort of gives her some peace or something in a time that like war is starting to ramp up, and she's in a kind of tumultuous relationship with an artist, and so it's sort of there as a bit of a. Um, something that always fascinates her and so that when her whole life falls apart and she has to remake herself she kind of abandons art for science but the thing that stays is animals like because she painted animals and now she sort of studies animals so it kind of just sort of seemed like a natural progression of what what would happen with her um, you just mentioned that you just started your second book. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a slow process right now. The first book is coming out, so it's it's hard. I find it hard to sort of toggle between the two worlds because they're really different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of I scrolled away this fall and and wrote a little bit. So I have something to come back to because that's sort of mainly what I need is something to hang on to. Um, I'm a slow writer. I think I, I think a lot. And then I write and revise and revise. And so it's, it sort of takes, uh, hopefully this next book will not take this as long. <laughs> and I won't put it in a drawer. I think I've got more urgency around it now. <laughs> the novel was being fermented for all these years and didn't get published till very recently. So what happened to all these years? What happened was my... My partner got a book deal. He's an illustrator also, so he was doing a book and he got an advance. So we, instead of doing something sensible like buying a house or something, we went to Europe and we lived in Paris for a year. And um, and that's, he was working and I was sort of, again, just wandering with a baby through Paris. And a lot of the stories started to take shape in my mind then, but I didn't really do much writing at all. Um, and then when I had my second child, it really became... Like it suddenly, I just had to sit down and write it. I'd been thinking about it for such a long time. So I sat down and wrote some pages and then I sent them off in a moment of like feeling somehow um, confident or I don't know what the word is. And I, I just sort of, I got a grant and I got, and then I got a couple of grants and that was really thrilling because it really gave me the time and space to write, to actually sit down and daily write because I could hire a babysitter and I could spend like chunks of time on it. So I really in earnest started when my second son was like a, a small baby. So he's nine now. So I wrote for, I'd say about two or three years on and off. And then I put it in a drawer for about three or four years and I didn't touch it. I started Horses, um, the clothing line with my friend Claudia Day. And, why um, was that though? Why? Yeah. Well, I was in a point where I wasn't sure where it was going or what to do with it. It was sort of, I'd sort of gotten a draft down and I wasn't, there were parts of it I didn't like, parts, you know, so it was sort of, it was still very much an untamed thing, you know, and I, my friend Claudia and I were both had our I had my third and she had her second child and we were sort of wheeling our babies through Parkdale and we were like she was trying to start a novel and having difficulty and I was trying to write and it was impossible with two small children and a, and a baby and we were just like gosh we're sick of you know this is so hard let's just try to do something that's fun and makes money which is hilarious <laughs> now, now that we know a bit about the fashion industry if we'd known more there's no way we I can confidently say we wouldn't have done it and we just had we got so excited 
excited. We had an, our name. We had what we were going to make our first collection within a few blocks. We and we were on fire. We just couldn't. And my, and my, I came home. My partner's like, "Are you sure? Don't you want to finish your book?" And <laughs> I was like, "No, no, this is great." And you know, we're going to make so much money, and it's going to be so fun. And I mean, meanwhile, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was fun, and, and yeah. it is. And but it was, you know, it was a real eye opener. You know, we we started. We had young children, and starting a business that we didn't know much about was really challenging. And now when I look at pictures of my daughter, she was only 10 months when we started, you know, kind of pounding the pavement and stuff. And I think, what a nuts time to do something like that, <laughs> you know, and it, it like it, she seems so little and it, you know, but it's, it's, it sort of seems both so long ago and so close still. Diving into an industry they knew very little about. Given them a fresh and almost naive perspective, and interestingly, this perspective turned out to be their strongest advantage. We had our first design was in vogue,、um, so that was thrilling and sort of helped us put us on the map. And then we sort of felt like, okay, well, now we really have to keep going here. <laughs> we have to, we have to follow through、How、with this. Well, we went to New York、um, for or it was after Fashion Week because we were late because we'd done everything kind of outside of the calendar at that point. We'd met a woman who who wrote for T Magazine. And she was very stony faced, and and she was very you know impeccably dressed, and she sort of rifled through our collection, and then she kind of stopped, and like there was actually like a tear in her eye. We were like, "What?" And she was like, "It's really emotional what you've made," and we both kind of looked at each other because I mean, she she looked like the type of person that wouldn't be moved, especially by like. Two women carrying garment bags full of kind of slightly rumpled clothes, <laughs> but she she really anyway. So she'd said that, and we were really excited. And then shortly after, she left T Magazine, and we thought, oh, okay, well, I guess you know whatever. And then she she surfaced again, and she was at Vogue, and she said, yeah, I'd love to do a piece about you guys. So it was a really lucky kind of string of things that led. You know, led us to to being there, which was really special and and very exciting for us. <laughs> Did she share or express why she felt so emotional about the pieces? I don't know. I think she just knew that we'd made them from a personal place, and somehow she felt that when she was looking at them. And we'd sort of explained when we, you know, showed her the collection that both of us had grandmothers that were seamstresses, and you know, we'd hand stitched hems, and we made everything really simply, and we wanted things to last forever, and because we both love vintage clothes and. And love how they're put together. We sort of had a real sense around that, and I guess she just felt like it felt different. She's so used to dealing with PR people, and you know, she had the designers in front of her. She just reacted to them in the way that we'd made them, which is very, I realize now, not common. You know,、yeah. so often you make something and you expect, or not expect, but you just sort of、um, you hope that there's going to be a resonance with with what you've done, and often people just kind of fire through and oh, does this come in red? And you know, like it's sort of like that. So that. That was a really special moment to have as one of our first ones with an editor, which was really wonderful. Before we went to New York, we flew all the way to LA because we had one boutique that just loved what she loved our lookbook, which was shot by this wonderful photographer who since has moved to New York and become a huge, huge like. 
fashion name, weirdly, and he'd never really shot fashion before. Um, his name's Marc Pecmezian, and he shoots for Hermes and Isabel Meron, like all these big people, you know? I mean, he's, yeah, anyway. He was wonderful, and he shot it in a waterfall, and we had, like, strange, you know, barely showed the clothes, but the photos were beautiful. And this boutique, this really amazing boutique in, in L.A., said, yeah, I love it. Sure, come and meet me. And we were like, we our friend Christy was like, go like you go at that point we'd been rejected by a lot of Toronto places so we flew there we met with her and she was the most kind of cool looking woman we loved her style immediately and her and her kind of way and she just looked at it and said I, I don't know even know what to choose I love all of it and that was so nice because we'd had a lot of rejection at that point yes rejections were coming right here from home in Canada course as, as soon as you get some validation in the states you in canada people start to look at you but so, you think that's kind of ironic though yeah absolutely and what she loved was she was like wow canada like canada was sort of cool and romantic to her like being someone from who's born and bred in la like it you know and it was shot outside it just sort of seemed like a really wild romantic thing More whereas romantic. yeah whereas meanwhile like yeah. in toronto people are like well where have you been and who do you you know and then as soon as we came back and new york picked Picked us up in a few really great boutiques and then suddenly Canada was like okay yeah I guess we could you know actually the bay was wonderful they were the very from our very first collection the Hudson's Bay and the white space they they picked us up which was great so it, it all started after you know the ball kind of started to roll and then we we, we went with it and, and it was just a crazy learning curve where we just did everything from like packing our own FedEx boxes to you know we've done every aspect of the job You know, I think it's just like a slow burn. Hopefully we'll just be around for a while and, and continue to be able to do what we're doing. That's awesome because you guys do have like a cult following. <laughs> <laughs> one of our favorite lines was once we had a sample sale and a woman looked around at all the women trying things on and she said, you know, there's not a single woman in this room that looks the same, but they all look good in your clothes. And that was the best compliment we could have ever had because we love like a kind of dynamic group of women that do all different kinds of things and all ages and backgrounds and everything so and that was your vision for the well yeah like we didn't really we wanted someone outside of trends we wanted someone that really like went towards something because they have their own sense of their self you know and they could style it or wear it in the way that they wanted and they'd invest in something that was well made with really nice fabric that was sewn by adult women in Toronto <laughs> how did you find a manufacturer here um well it was a small pool so we eventually kind of landed on some certain sewers that we work with um and we have a wonderful woman who sample sews for us. She works out of her basement in like, where is she? Milton, Ontario. And oh, she's wow. like this beautiful, incredible sewer. And she learned in Krakow and Poland where she's originally from. And we've met so many incredible women and a lot of European women. Oh my gosh. They look at here and they think, oh, like they talk about the kind of exams they had to do and just fine needlework. And there's not a lot of room for things like that now because so much of the production's gone offshore. So there's all these incredible women that have great talent that aren't, you know, that are looking for work or yeah. need work. So... I, yeah, well, we realized quickly, like, how the money is made in the industry, and it didn't really appeal to us. Like, I mean, I know that sounds privileged, but, I mean, certainly it would be nice to, we had to, you know, do a lot of, like, scrambling to try to initially invest in the in what we make. Because it's very labor-intensive and expensive industry to kind of delve into. I had to, like, put a second mortgage on the house and all that kind of stuff. Like, it was, you know, certainly money would be nice, but it, it, not at the cost that it would come at 
And it was, it's a really nice job to have in conjunction with writing because writing is so solitary. You know, it's just all words and it can really um, make you crazy sometimes. You're sort of like intensely in another world. Really, you have to drop out of this world to kind of write, I feel, a long form thing like a novel. Whereas fashion is just so visual and so immediate and so... Um, you know, it's sociable and, you know, so it's a really nice counterpoint. It's wonderful that my partner, Claudia, is also a novelist. So we both understand both worlds. And then because it's a partnership, we can really truly hand over, disappear for a month and write while the other person is at the studio making the decisions and doing all of that stuff. So it's a true partnership and that we can kind of like really trade off. And that is essential because we wouldn't be able to do it if we if we didn't have that. Frankly, you sort of long for the other. I always love relativity. I love being in the city, knowing that I can escape to the countryside. My parents live a couple hours north. And then when I'm in the country, I know if I only was there, I'd, I'd miss so many things about the city. So I feel the same with writing and designing. There are two different worlds but one sort of helps the other out I think. But talking about escaping it's kind of interesting because you actually move away to south of France for a bit. Mm-hmm. You thought that was going to be the, the ideal world for you mm-hmm. and it turned out you didn't actually like it and the yeah. wine there wasn't good. <laughs> That's what I read. Sounds like first world problems I know. Well yeah I, it was sort of my, I had an editor that wanted me to write that sort of contrarian piece but there was truth to it in the sense that um, initially before we ended up in Paris we'd rented this house sight unseen in the Loire Valley which everyone said, oh, it's very beautiful there. And I'd, I'd traveled a bit and worked in France as a bike guide years ago. So I knew some of the regions, but what not that one. What kind of jobs you haven't done? <laughs> <laughs> like I'm sure like, there's a lot. <laughs> um, but we got there and it was just, you know, it was so, um, I can't even really explain it. It just felt dead a bit. It was beautiful and kind of not alive. And although there were some amazing things, the one thing that was there was that there were caves that existed under the house. And I would write there. I would write there because it was so hot then. Um, And actually wrote it right into my book the ivory frame the main character works in caves which sounds bizarre and but it actually I actually did it so yeah yeah so that was really special and beautiful there but other than that it just really felt um you know it just felt smack in the middle of these sunflower fields it's the first time I thought I've thought of sunflowers as oppressive they're big massive heads turning as the sun you know all in in a huge field together I I just I found it oppressive weirdly and it just was sort of bland like it was like there was no um I kind of I guess like roughness I like wine that kind of hits you in the chest you know like I love like things that are they kind of make you awake or something. It felt like the woman that rented us the house described it as one big bubble bath. And to me, I was like, oh, God, like I just I need a fast shower and I need to get out of here. <laughs> My partner and I, that night we sat there and we kind of looked around it with this sort of beautiful setting. And we both kind of were like being sort of polite with one another about it. And then we were like yeah, now we have to get out of here. And we actually ended up getting out of our lease and we, because we were going to stay there for at least half a year. Oh, and so you didn't even stay there? For no, a- we stayed there for about a month. and a then month. Or not even maybe, oh, yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah, and then we went to, um, and then we flew to Russia and, and we had a friend that was in Moscow and she was traveling so we could stay in her place. 
Um, and but that I just, was also an interesting turn as well. Yeah, <laughs> Moscow was beautiful. It felt like being in a fairy tale. Everything was such a big scale, and I didn't expect it at all. I had no image in my mind of what it would look like, and I had no idea that it had like it looked like macarons. Like it was all the colors, pastel colors, and just grand and beautiful like I really quite loved it and then from there we ended up back in Paris and found a beautiful little apartment and and spent the rest of our time there and that felt right it felt really like just wandering the city it's such a great city to walk on foot everywhere and discovering weird little markets and old ateliers and I found an old book binder there that I loved that also ended up in my book and so it was just a like and and I loved how the the um like, you know, there's cafes that have been there for 300 years and they're the same place or, you know, so, and you can kind of walk on the street, Rue Jacob, where like Picasso had his studio and it's still like all of it's there. So that was sort of exciting. That's sort of, again, where the novel kind of took form in my mind was while, as I was walking. So why did you move back to Toronto? <laughs> <laughs> the money ran out. Oh. Money kind of was running out and, and it was, we just sort of, you know, we always sort of, when we were there, we visited a famous reclusive illustrator that lived in the very south of France. And we loved this crazy medieval village he lived in. And we kind of vowed that we'd go back and like retire there one day. So I feel like that's my plan. I want to end up moving okay. there. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's it. Okay. I'm just going to have some rapid fire questions. Sure. So this is going to be a tough question. Oh, okay. Life. Okay. <laughs> if you can be known for one thing and one thing only, what would that be? Oh my gosh. I think being a good person. This might sound a little bit weird. Okay. So let's say the scenario is robots and aliens are taking over the world. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. But they're mercy for one thing for every human being on this planet. You can remember three memories of yours hmm. as soon as we washed out the planet. And it would take you to another planet. Okay. And this three memory is going to go with you when you go there. Maybe you can share. Three, the three memories? Yeah. Three well, I could quickly say what they would be. They would be the birth of each of my kids. Oh, my God. Because it, it was really trans. And I, and I had them in this house. And I feel, um, I don't know. I've just never felt like anything quite so amazing. And my husband actually said it so beautifully after our first child was born. He said it was like having a visitation by angels or aliens or both. And I felt like that's how it felt. Like, it's like, you're just, it was the most profound experience. Yeah. The same scenario, but the three truths that you can take away with you that you can share with others. Hmm. Well, you know, one of it's in, I put it in my book, but I said, the only thing real is feeling, you know, all the things that we, we can't take with us, but the feelings that you experience when you're with people or by yourself in, in some place or some moment of kind of real awareness, like that's, I think that's the only thing that's truly real and important in life. It's hard to hang on to those moments. <laughs> what about the other two? Um, truths. Um, I mean, I think that relationships are, are sort of also the thing to spend time and to be your best self in, too, because they are also the things that are the most real with with friends and family and everything, and even people you work with, I guess. Um, the third one, okay, another truth. Um, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'm terrible at categorical questions. Um, Sorry. That's okay. Um, so a truth that I'd need to bring with me. Oh, that you feel like you can share with others. 
I guess just to make time count. I feel like now that I'm sort of in middle age, I realize how, um, I don't know, I, I feel more like I want to really like use my time. I feel like if I could express that to people, like just like, you know, try to be, you know, really aware and conscious in your life and as much as you can, like just use your time because we've got such a short time. And talking about that, I have to insert another question. Okay. <laughs> Before you mentioned about wish you didn't, the time you didn't waste, mm. um, what kind of time would that be? Well, the thing is, I mean, I say that, but then I feel like, I guess, I, I do think like, sometimes you need to meander. I mean, you can never sometimes go use a straight line. Like I do feel like my own life is so jumpy and strange. Like, but I do, I guess one thing I, I wished I'd had was more time almost alone because I feel without and even now it's more and more difficult without all the noise and and sort of stimulations of of like the internet and things and polls from people I feel like it's really important for all like thinking and feeling people to have time alone and I feel like if I if I'd had a little more of that when I was younger I would have maybe seen a bit clearer I was very kind of all over the place <laughs> Which I don't regret, but I, I, you know, I, I do, I kind of think, wow, I wish I'd, yeah, I don't know. I wish I'd like sat down and written or something. Yeah, but your experience in Yukon was in your book. We are an accumulation for our experiences, good and bad, you know, whether you meandered to get there or whether you shot an arrow straight to it or whatever, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not big on regret. I feel like, you know, that old thing, you'd only regret the things you don't do. And I feel like one thing I try to do is just jump in and do stuff. So, you know, and take risks if I can. And I feel like a lot of risk taking when I was younger was just because I didn't really know what I wanted, which is part of growing up, I guess. So what do you want now? Um, Sorry, I'm inserting all this. Like, yeah, that's okay. Questions. It's just so interesting. Um, yeah, I guess I just really... Um, I don't know. I guess, again, I like, I really want to make time count. I want to like work on things that I really believe in. So book, like writing books is one, cause I feel like it's never time wasted. Um, really mining your like, you know, sort of subconscious and like really spending time really focused on something. Cause it's sort of at the heart of my book, the dictionary of animal languages is I'm sort of obsessed with not just old ladies, but dedication. Like mm -hmm. when everything else falls away, when you just sort of focus on one thing, what you can do and where you go with that is fascinating to me. So if you could choose to be born in any city in the whole world, which city mm. would you pick? Wow. Hmm. I don't know. That's a tough one. I guess... I don't know. I, I don't know if I could, I don't even know if I could pick one. I guess I feel like, um, I don't feel a particular alliance to any one place, I guess. Although that's sort of not totally true. Cause I, I do feel like you can't escape the child, you know, the, the sort of like landscapes of your childhood. And I feel like that's partly why I ended up back in Toronto. I tried living in other places and I love visiting, but I, I feel like something about the trees and the seasons really resonates with me here. When I lived in Singapore, I found it really hard to not have seasons the way I recognize them because it allows your emotions to change too. You can kind of hibernate in the winter and be freer in the summer. And But now I'm just really meandering from your question. <laughs> <laughs> But it's not like Toronto. Would that be? I don't know. I mean, I mean, it would be cool to have like a, you know, to be from like, like know. Marrakesh or something. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think I'm okay to be where I'm from. Okay. Yeah. And this is kind of another weird question. Okay. It's by this uh, filmmaker. 
I'm having a hard time pronouncing his name, but Yorgos Lanthimos. Oh, I don't know. Um, so he has the two really famous, or not famous, but at least to me, I really love uh, films. One is The Lobster. Oh, I've I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the second one, they, he just uh, I think last year. Okay. Was, um, the the Secret Deer. The, oh. the sacrifice of the Secret Deer. Oh. So uh, kind of interesting because animals seems have been running the theme in his mm-hmm, film as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so in the, the lobster, yeah, as, soon as you watched it, it was a creepy as hell. Yeah, very creepy. Yeah, really gets you to think. Yeah. So let's say that's a scenario, and now if you, to be which animal? Yeah, which choose? animal would you choose? Huh. That is so hard. Um, I have. I'm just trying to think of what it would like to be like to live like an ant like that animal. I suppose, like something kind of beautiful and large, like a whale, would be kind of amazing. Oh, wow. Like floating. I had a real scuba diving phase when I was living in Southeast Asia. The slowness of water was so appealing to me mm-hmm. because everything just is sort of imbued with this kind of significance when things move so slowly and those big creatures they just go so like those big sea turtles with their slow flapping i find it so beautiful and calm like you just hear your own breath it's beautiful if you could travel back in time for a month which era would you go Ooh, i'm so attracted to time travel backwards but then i always think oh god like imagine women's place in this yeah Okay, I'm like, so we could we could come back and be like <laughs> exactly. respected. Um, gosh, I I feel like I, I mean, this is super boring, but I kind of feel like Victorian era. I'd be very fascinated. Yeah. I don't know, you know, I just like I love the. Um, I just be I'd love to be on a, a fly on the wall for a while to just you know be amongst a time that was you know traveling by horses and and writing a lot of letters and reading and stitching and and the strange and difficult outfits and (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's great um so you kind of sort of answered this question but what are you currently seeking Mm. hmm I'm seeking the world of my next book, I would say. It's sort of it's, it's sort of doing the thing it did before when it with this first one, which is that I feel its pull and I, I want to go there and see what that is, see what that that whole world, that strange world that's sort of waiting for me in my notebook. <laughs> That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. And I have to get you to sign this book for me. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Um, Whatever you want okay. to sign. Okay. Yeah. And are you, you're Sasha with an S, not a C, like S A S. Yeah, so S A S H A. Right. Okay. That's so nice. Thank you. You're so welcome. Oh, that's so beautiful. And you wrote. For Sasha, the beautiful seeker. Yes. <laughs> you just melted my heart. Thank you so much. You're it's so welcome. Heidi is one of those women you could just keep listening to her and absorbing her wisdom like a sponge. For all the images taking Heidi's home are now on our website at dearseekers.com. Head over there because you will fall in love with Heidi's home. I promise you. Please subscribe and write us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud. Your support will help us be notified by more women who may find our conversations helpful. If you're on Instagram, find us at Dear Seekers. For those who have DM'd me, thank you very much for your support. You are the reason why I'm doing this. Next episode is in two weeks. See you soon. Until then, happy seeking. Mm-hmm.